Good morning and welcome to the Truth About Local Government podcast. Uh, my name is Matt Masters and as ever this podcast is here to shine a light on the challenges and the opportunities that our local government colleagues are uh, facing throughout the country and implementing throughout the country um, to try and drive a greater level of engagement with the community um, and, and fundamentally to, to kind of break down any barriers in participation through a greater level of exposure, understanding and hopefully therefore engagement. In this weekly update, I'm going to run through a few topics that I think are pretty interesting. Um, the first one is the four-day working week and the debate that South Cambridgeshire Council um, has brought to the table. Um, we're going to be looking at the economic growth at a local level, the housing crisis, infrastructure levy, the Legal Migration Act and the Asylum Hotels, please. So some pretty interesting and varied uh, topics here. I'm going to start off with the four-day working week. Now, the, the essentially, South Cambridgeshire District Council trialled a four-day working week, and it received negative feedback from central government, um, but unfairly so, because, um, you know, I think Lee, Lee Rowley, who is the, uh, the, the local government minister, he called out the council... Um, for having the temerity to experiment with a four-day working week. Now, I strongly disagree against that, and I'll tell you for why. We're in a situation with councils whereby, through no fault of their own, but through the grading system that exists, so every role in a council is graded, and that's based on responsibility, qualifications, the breadth of the role. When you compare that to the private sector, essentially they can't compete on salary alone. So they have to look at other factors that could attract candidates with the right skills to join their organisation. The issue we've got with regards to um, the flexible working that used to be uh, a big driver for getting people uh, across in the private sector, maybe for the flexible working with having children or the, the kind of condensed working week of being 40 hours compared to you know 60 to 80. Now, I'm not saying that people in the public sector don't go beyond that 40 hours, but there is far more, there used to be far more flexibility. In a post-COVID landscape, the flexibility piece that used to be almost their, a silver bullet for trying to attract candidates has been in some part removed because of the, um, the utilisation of this by the private sector. And therefore, the four-day working week essentially is that the people get paid for five days of work for doing four days of work. But there have been studies across you know, the whole of Europe that have shown that actually productivity was not affected by this. Productivity was better. The psychological benefit to well-being was higher. There was less people going from sick leave. So if councils can do the four-day working week and it doesn't affect productivity, but allows them to fundamentally bring in the best talent then why would we not do that? Um, it is a, I think it's a great idea, and I think it's short-sighted as ever by central government to condemn the councils for trying to be creative to solve the staffing crisis that, it, I'm not going to go so far to say it's an epidemic, but it is an absolute issue. Um, so yeah, it, that, that's uh, something that I think we need to really kind of give a lot of, a lot of focus to. Um Subject matter number two is the, uh, the ongoing point. You're going to say, Matt, stop talking about it, but is the infrastructure levy. So essentially, the government has offered concessions on its planned infrastructure levy in the face of significant opposition 
in the House of Lords. So an amendment to the levelling up and regeneration bill proposed by the Lib Dem local government spokesman, Baroness Pinnock, would have removed plans for an infrastructure levy from the bill entirely. Baroness Pinnock argued the levy offered more benefits to affluent areas and threatened levels of affordable housing. And quote, she said, the difficulty with the infrastructure levy is that this is not the right time to change developer charging systems. Nor will it provide sufficient funding at the appropriate time to fund affordable housing and local facilities for developments. It is time for a total rethink. So while the vote was lost, the Communities Minister, Baroness Scott of Bybrook, said the government would carry out further consultation and engagement on aspects of the levy. So there will be new government amendments that will enable councils to demand on-site affordable housing as part of the levy and prevent developers negotiating contributions downwards. Baroness Pinnock was also among peers who put forward amendments aiming to secure a review of business rates. She labelled measures in the non-domestic rates bill, such as more frequent valuations, as just tweaks to a complex set of business taxation that are in desperate need of fundamental reform. Labour local government spokesman Baroness Taylor of Stevenage also put forward an amendment arguing tariffs and top-ups were not very efficient at making sure that the funding from non-domestic rates gets to where it needs to go. She added, they are not structured enough to ensure that where you have poor parts of better off areas, the funding gets to where it needs to go. However, the amendments were withdrawn in the face of the opposition from the government. Baroness Scott said the amendments were entirely unnecessary due to existing measures in the non-domestic rates bill. She also highlighted the latest reviews concluded that there were no consensus on an alternative model of taxation that will be able to replace business rates revenue. What does that mean? We've got the central government trying to change the way in which infrastructure levies, so when developers build mixed use and, and housing developments, structure that. And it's just absolutely unnecessary and it's going to cause more chaos than it is worth. There's also been a fresh focus recently on the, well, a greater call for greater clarity and guidance on the role of statutory officers. So the LLG, the lawyers and local government, have agreed that more detailed guidance is absolutely required and they've been campaigning for what they call the golden triangle of the three statutory officers. So you have the head of paid services, normally chief executive, the section 151 officer, who's responsible for the finance of the council, and the monetary officer, normally the head of legal, who's there to make sure that the council is governed in a legal way. But essentially, you know, what we need to see, we need to support the need to ensure that all the such officers work together, not in isolation, and that this approach strengthens good governance. Mr. McArdle suggested the fact that the government had accepted the best value report confirmed there was merit in the recommendations that we needed to see the three statutory officers working closer together and all three of those statutory officers coming together to ensure governance and financial capability is properly focused at a council. I'm going to talk now about something that's not specifically around councils, but it is a broader uh, issue that does affect our local government. So 
For those of you who haven't heard, there is an Illegal Migration Act, and that is going to be incredibly damaging to children. So essentially, the unaccompanied asylum-seeking children could be in danger of being exploited after the Illegal Migration Act created an incentive for them to run away. Essentially, under the Act, you can see that these children, the UASC as they're referred to in some other literature, could be removed from the United Kingdom when they turned 18 and returned back to where they originally um, transported them to, well, originally came from initially. So actually, we've got a real issue now where children will start running away. And, you know, as a council that has responsibility for looking after children in those areas, it creates another level of complexity around safeguarding. And I just feel that if we're going to invest, you know, we, as a country, we're taking, I absolutely completely agree that we should be taking in refugees. But if we are taking in refugees as a country to support um, and educate those most in need, then we shouldn't then turn our backs when they turn 18. They're a part of our community and a part of our country. The issue as well with Hyde that you'd have seen recently is the, uh, the contentious issue around hotels being utilised um, or not being utilised moving forward to house um, asylum seekers who are coming to the UK. Now, just to kind of context, £6 million a day is spent on housing asylum seekers in hotels. That was published in a recent study um, and was uh, has been kind of constantly being something that a lot of leaders, including the leader of Brickland District Council, um, has cited as something that we should really challenge. However, there is a real concern amongst local government leaders that we don't want to back ourselves into a corner by saying that we're no longer going to utilise hotels to house unexpected levels of asylum seekers or those in danger. If you look at COVID with homeless people, if you look at the Afghan uh, Afghanistan refugees, if you look at Libya, if you look at Ukraine, we have to be able to be flexible. And sometimes flexible resource is expensive. We've seen that across, we talked about special education, and of course a multitude of services. Sometimes it is incredibly challenging to to kind of adjust to those um, unexpected uh, situations that occur. But to say you're no longer going to utilise what is a quite an effective part of um, your kind of short-term strategy, again, is it's very it's it's a very concerning, um, and I think there needs to be a strong look at not having a whiplash reaction with this. I'm going to go next to talking about the um, the housing crisis. So there was a really, there's a, um, a lady called Heather Jameson, who's a very good writer, who's been talking about whether it is simple or not. We've seen a lot, and we're going to see more and more about this, whether or not it's simple. Central government, you know, stamping their feet and saying, councils, you need to do more to get houses built. But is it that simple? I don't think it is. I mean, ultimately, you can reform planning as much as you like. And the main problem comes from the planning system, you know, not having the resource to get through the applications or there being complexity around local plans. But unfortunately, you know, until there is significant reform um, and where reform, I don't just mean around, you know, the, the kind of um, the gestures of financial investment that central government have given. We've got to try and in a way get to a point where we can properly uh, have properly resourced planning functions. Now, 
the reason that is so incredibly difficult, and I must say I don't agree with people that are saying it's just a case of paying planners more, keep them from the, going to the private sector, is that you can't just pay planners more on a council. Because the way that the grading system works, essentially, is they look at the breadth of role, as I said previously, and they look at qualifications. So they'll compare a chartered accountant to a chartered town planner, to a chartered surveyor. And if you raise one, you have to raise them all. And herein lies the problem. Because if you raise the level, the, 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 the salary of planning, then you raise the entire cost base of that council. And when councils are facing a need to reduce cost, that's simply not going to happen. And until that blockage is removed, housing development will not push forward, even without considering the, I mean, we've seen today, today being the 3rd of, of August, potentially the Bank of England raising interest rates to 5.2%, or roughly around that point. We're seeing a, a very severe decrease in the amount of first-time buyers because of the cost of mortgages. But even withstanding that, if we cannot get the planning system in a position whereby there is enough resource to tackle um, the application process, the housing system is not going to um, improve. And then that takes you back to the, the costly, costly um, short term accommodation that is being utilised to, to house families and those that need affordable housing. It's a really, really difficult issue and it's not a simple answer. And for anyone that thinks it is literally a case of councils aren't doing enough, councils are doing all they can. Councils don't have the resource. It's not a simply a case of raising salaries for a few that would resolve this because it's just not that simple. Fundamentally, you've got to look at it and go, we've got to invest in the whole. If that is something that we're really passionate about or you change your targets and you change the amount of houses that we expect to build and be more realistic. But again, that's not a vote winner because obviously housing is a massive vote winner. So that's absolutely a very important part of um of council council policy the final thing i want to talk about today is the need for economic growth at a local level so central government there, there used to be these organizations called local enterprise partnerships they will no longer uh, exist in, in in the short term um but there is a need to focus around better local economies in the future. There's a really interesting piece uh, from a lady called Sarah Longlands, who's the chief executive of the Centre for Local Economic Strategies, where she essentially talks about where she says, we cannot let pragmatism dampen our belief in better times ahead and set out two ambitions for better local economies in the future. So place-based policy in the UK continues to rely on the assumption put forward by George Osborne's 2020 that investment in public services must be dependent on the ability to generate growth. It, aerobic logic, has resulted in more than a decade of growing austerity, leaving communities and some local councils in a perpetual state of crisis. In the age of austerity, people who can do can focus on creating local strategies to develop complex regeneration projects to help create communities and jobs is something that we really must focus on. The recommendations that she puts forward include a presumption in favour of retaining assets in public ownership to ensure the benefit accrues to communities in the longer term, widening participation in the planning and delivery of new schemes to local communities, 
and working with partners to set out an ambitious plan for building and sharing local wealth. While the current context and challenges require pragmatism, we cannot let that dampen our belief in better times ahead. So here are our two ambitions for better local economies in the future. Nationally, we need a conversation about the purpose and the role of public investment in our local economies and why it matters. And locally, we must remain focused on the needs of the communities and not get distracted by the interests of big capital. And I mean, a great example of that is Stoke-on-Trent, where they've invested into the levelling up. They got the largest award from the first round and they've got the highest rate of skilled jobs in the country at the moment. Every area has its different cultural um, identity, its different makeup of uh, different skilled workforce, and therefore each local, each local economic plan is different. But you have to make sure that the economic plan meets the people that live in that community. And of course, you can drive skilled jobs and you can drive you know, the improvement and the salaries in the area. But it is an absolutely critical part of every chief executive, every director of economic development and every political leader of council. That's it for now. Have a nice weekend. Speak soon.